Our platform speaker today really needs no introduction. He's held many, 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 many creative roles here at WES. Join me in inviting Marty Kaufman. Thank you. Gather, perfect, and the reasons to gather. Sound, dream, hope, strength, peace. Did anybody else see the opening ceremonies on Friday? Yeah, okay, decent number. That was the promise of the opening ceremonies. Now the games just have to make good on that promise. There's ways it happens, ways it doesn't, and that's a big part of why I just wanted to come talk to you today. There's a major worldwide cultural event happening, and I'd hate for you to be left out of being able to have those excellent, excellent water cooler talks about why the 1928 games were so important, <clears throat> and 36, and 48, and just really to make this connection between the Olympic Games and what's now known as Olympism, or the Olympic ideal, and the core beliefs of ethical culture. And beyond the beliefs, how those are put into action and how we can maybe see that happen on the world stage during the games. What to look for, what not to look for, mostly doing it through storytelling. So, that's my whole MO. 70 years ago this week, Jesse Owens was on his way to winning four gold medals in the 36 Olympic Games in Berlin, and there are numerous stories to tell from those games, both good and not so good, and quite frankly, terrible. But I want to focus on one. I want to focus on the long jump competition, because I think just that thread explains so much of this interrelationship that I see and the reason why I think both why we gather both for ethical culture here on Sunday and possibly for the games themselves to be able to pursue our hopes and dreams to be able to make a joyous sound to see incredible incredible strength and perhaps be strengthened through that and to find even if for a moment just a sliver of peace that may not exist somewhere else also a common thread that traces us all the way back to the ancient Olympic Games. So, 1960. <clears throat> 1960 was nowhere near where I'm headed because I said 36. Okay, it's my understanding there would be no math. Turns out there is. <clears throat> 1936. <laughs> there was no doubt that Jesse Owens was the premier sprinter and long jumper in the world. Everybody knew who he was. Not everybody had been able to see him perform, but he just wrapped up a Big Ten season at Ohio State. I'm still coping with that um, <clears throat> as a Michigander. Um, and breaking world records at the Big Ten Championship. So he showed up at the games a favorite, a favorite to win multiple events, uh, first of which the 100-yard dash, which was great. And since we actually do have this, wanted to at least uh, see what it's like because he's had this great quote that's kind of uh, lasted throughout the years on how much of the, the Olympic Games, much of athletics is about a lifetime of practice and effort for just 10 seconds. And that is basically what this is. It is just 10 seconds. And actually, for us, it's going to be zero seconds because we're moving on. So, um, video worked before. Now we're struggling. The, um, so he gets through the 100. Next event is the 200 meters. He wins that as well. And then he's on to the long jump, where he's the current world record holder. And in order to compete in the finals, you had to make your way through the preliminaries. So you get three jumps just to make it over some minimal distance to make sure you go through to the finals. This minimum is three feet less than his best jump. But he fouls his first two times. Just got one shot left, one chance. He's kind of berating himself beside the, the runway there, and a competitor comes up to him and in broken English says, Jesse, what's eating you? You should be able to qualify with your eyes closed. He said, ah, I don't know, I don't know. The guy says, look, 
Jump from a foot behind the board. You'll be fine. I'll leave my towel on the grass, look for it, jump from there. So, as the story goes, this guy does, Jesse does, and he's through to the finals. Five jumps. This guy goes first, he's out in the lead. Jesse jumps 25 feet 10 inches. It's a big jump, 25 10. Everyone's trying to beat him. Coming close, not quite, close, not quite. On the fifth and final jump, this guy that helped him into the finals jumps 25 feet 10 inches. A tie with the great Jesse Owens world record holder. Probably feeling pretty good about himself, but Jesse still has one jump left. And that's the part I really wanted to show you. All right. <clears throat> 10, 9, 4, 3, 2, 1. Okay, so <laughs> imagine training your whole life, and then it's over like that. That's not just true for the elite athletes. It's not just true for sprinters. Those who train for this Olympic moment, it is a lifetime of work to then be able to display it and try to have your ultimate moment in just a fraction of that time. So, in the long jump, oh, it's going to be so frustrating. I will just tell the story. 25 feet, 10 inches. They're tied. It's Jesse's fifth and final jump. He runs down, hits the board, sails through the air. 26 feet, five and a half inches. Yeah, for those who are curious, if he left right from here, there's a mark on the floor all the way back there in white that is 26 feet, five and a half inches from where I'm standing. That's unbelievable. Like, you see these things happening on TV, you're like, wow, that's pretty far. Yeah, that was pretty far. No, that is really far. <laughs> and that was 1936. So he beats this guy, right? And um, we'll see if we can get this one to roll. But to be able to watch him, slow motion, fly, fly. The fact that he won is impressive, but it's not what was unexpected. What's unexpected is this guy that comes up to congratulate him. Before they even finish measuring, that's kind of gutsy, puts his arm around him. No, no, look, he says. He turns him around. That may be your best one ever. Puts his arm around him and walks him out of the long jump pit. The reason that's so unexpected is because that guy was six-time German national long jump champion, Lutz Long. Standing in Berlin in the Olympic Games with Hitler watching and befriending Jesse Owens. Seeing him as human, not subhuman, and also not superhuman, like many others thought he was then too. Just another guy who happened to beat me by seven and a half inches in the Olympic Games. Great jump, Jesse. So they received their medals, but the friendship endured. They stayed in contact for many years. Um, there's, these, there's this iconic image, which many of you may have seen, if you've seen this one before, it's the two of them just at the edge of the long jump pit. And they wrote to each other for years. And in Long's final letter to Jesse, what he said was, among other things, I'm just going to jump down and fix this because I know what's going on. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, so one of the things that he, uh, that he tells him, someday, find my son. Tell him how things can be between men on this earth. Who writes a letter like that? If you think about the time... We're somewhere between 1936 and 1945. Lutz Long writes this to Jesse Owens, shortly after Long is killed in battle in World War II in Italy. So 28 years after these games, 28 years later, Jesse goes and makes good on that request. He goes to Germany. He goes to Berlin. He goes back to that same stadium. He lays down in that same spot where that iconic photo was taken with Lutz Long's son, Carl, and tells him, how things can be between men on this earth. And shortly after, stands in where Lutz Long couldn't because he'd passed away years before as the best man at Carl's wedding.
It's a good story. I mean, it's, it's actually a great story. Um, but what it tells me is, like, what Lutz Long did and what, and what Jesse Owens did, not as a great athlete, but as a person, that's what Olympism asks of us. That's what ethical culture asks of us. It's a pretty lofty ideal. The words that I, uh, that I spoke as part of the opening words, I didn't give away then what they actually were, but they're the first and second principles of Olympism. I did a little bit of editing so it wasn't saying sport, sport, sport all over the place. And without that, those words are, and I tested this on uh, none of you in here, but like three, <laughs> no, I tested this on three people. I didn't want to call anybody out. I'm like, who, who do you think might have said this? And the answer is like, oh, it was definitely Adler. I read that. I know that was Adler. It was in Amanda's class. Um, uh, others went for um, uh, Algernon Black. So these were the options. No, the principles of Olympism. It's a philosophy of life, exalting and combining in a balanced whole the qualities of body, will, and mind, creating a way of life based on the joy of effort, the educational value of good examples, social responsibility, and respect for universal, fundamental, ethical principles. That could be the statement of purpose on the front of our program, if not for all the sport, sport, body stuff, right? Not really our thing. Tend to be a little more, uh, a little more brainy on this. The second principle of Olympism goes back to say the goal is to place sport at the service of, not to replace everything else that's good in life, but to put it in service of the harmonious development of humankind with a view to promoting a peaceful society concerned with the preservation of human dignity. Peace and human dignity and inherent worth are three themes I'm going to keep coming back to because it's the big part of the common thread I see and I want to talk about. So where does that place us? Okay, why talk about this today? Why talk about this here? Just a quick poll. Who would self-identify somewhere in their past as a jock? How many jocks are here? Okay, you can look around at the hands. That's a pretty small percentage, and the topic of this platform was really obvious, so we are already self-selected <laughs> to be about as high as this percentage is going to get. We create this dichotomy in our society that places pursuing physical perfection or pushing yourself to your physical limits is something lower than pursuing our best intellectual or our best spiritual limits. And yes, these things are different, but they were never meant to be separate. We have jocks versus nerds, athletes versus artists, uh, the physical and the spiritual. We create these separations. The ancient Greeks would have thought we were a little absurd for this because there was this concept of arete, which was, uh, I think, the more literal translation is being like the gods. But what that meant is finding a supreme way of being. It is how you operate in the world. A supreme way of being. And it required mind, body, and spirit to all be in harmony. Not one at the service of the other two, but for all three to be together. Which is a pretty radical concept, and it's why we have so much uh, love all these millennia later for a lot of Greek thinking. So they would think it's a little bit absurd that we create this separation. And so what I wanted to do is be able to talk about the Olympic Games in that context, not just the commercial and physical, but also the intellectual and spiritual. And I wanted to tie that into what we believe in ethical culture. It's a little bit ambitious, so in 25 minutes, eight of which are already gone, like, here it goes. What you need to know about the ancient Olympic Games, and there's a lot to know, is that they were really, really important. Some have said, oh, it was like the Super Bowl, and oh, what's the other big one? The Super Bowl, World Cup, and Woodstock all rolled in together, and even that probably wouldn't describe it. So the games, the Olympic Games, were held in Olympia and were to honor Zeus, and it was a religious festival where people came to celebrate, compete as brothers. 
And what were they competing in? There was only one athletic event. It was about a 20-meter run called a stade, one length of the stadium. That was it. What else were they competing in? Poetry, dialectics, debate, art, pottery, sculpture, poetry. This is what they were competing in. Arts, humanities, and a little bit of running on the side because we're celebrating that too. Pretty incredible. And they track their calendar by the Olympic Games. So it was important, right? You say, oh, well, what about the, the religious aspect? Yeah, the victors, the people who did win, they had the honor of roasting the meat that everybody ate and honoring it up to Zeus. Like, okay, that, that's a nice honor. And you got honored back in your hometown, like you were chaired through as a hero. Like, that's all great too. But the idea was, and has always been throughout that time, over here the winged goddess Nike is kind of up top. The vic- you know, yes, you are victorious, and now I'm gone. That is not just true in athletics, it's true everywhere. Victory, our ultimate moments, they're fleeting. That's why we have to grasp them, celebrate them, write songs about them. That's why that happens, because you don't get to live in that state forever. And that's why the Greeks tracked their time by the games. What year was it? 622? No. It was the third year of the 113th Olympiad where Zenis of Elis won the race. That's no joke. That's how they track time. But my favorite story about the ancient games is what they did before the games were to happen. It was every four years. It was pretty predictable, but not every knew exactly when to show up, right? There was no Evite, things like that. So what they did was they took this discus out of the, the Temple of Hera, and it was supposedly gold and ivory and beautiful, and around the edge it was inscribed like, you know, the Olympic Games are about to begin. It is time for the Olympic truce. And these truce runners would take this discus, which in hindsight they should have made a lot smaller, if the, if, the, uh, if the size is correct, somebody holding it, it would have run from fingertip to just beyond their elbow, like, and made of metal, like, crazy. So, um, so they have this thing, and they run it all over the known world to say it's time for the games, it's time for the truce, there is to be no more war, no more killing, no capital punishment, everybody gets safe passage to and from Olympia. And for the better part of over a thousand years, they mostly, not perfectly, but mostly were able to pull that off. Athletics alone doesn't do that. But when you're wrapping all that in together, something like that can achieve what politics, what uh, you know, diplomacy, what none of that could. So that's the history that's, that's passed down. So the games ran from 776 BCE to 393 of the Common Era. Um, getting a little professorial here. But Theodosius I was the, the Roman emperor and decided this was a little too pagan, so no more games. And while we're at it, let's tear down all the temples and let's just burn it to rubble because we don't need to be reminded and Olympia and so many other Greek sites lay dormant until the mid to late 1800s. So that's a long span of over 1,500 years where this stuff lays literally and figuratively buried. But in the mid-1800s, late-1800s, a movement is growing that's investigating a different way of thinking, a different way of being, and espousing that there are these shared values and our interconnectedness can take us to some core ethical principles around who we are, how we treat each other, and how we live our lives. Now that's true of both ethical culture and it's true of the Olympic movement. And the similarities of the founders is also something that that bears mentioning. Felix Adler was a a, a rabbi and a professor. He's on the left for those of you who don't know. Um, Baron Pierre de Coubertin was an educator and social reformer. Before he latched onto this whole Olympics idea, what he was working on was reforming all of secondary education throughout France and Western Europe, and hopefully elsewhere, and building the ideas of workers' schools so that education could be holistic, ethically based, 
and available to all, regardless of what class of society they were in. For those who read Adler, you'll probably notice a whole lot of similarities between their backgrounds. I don't know if they ever met or kvetched about anything. I guess Adler would probably kvetch to Cooper 10, probably not a, not a kvetcher. But, but a lot of similarity going on here in what they believe and the ethical principles that are being put forward at that time and also stating what should happen next. And it's interesting that the, not just interesting, it is telling that the Olympic motto is Sitius Altius Fortius, swifter, higher, stronger. Not swiftest, highest, fastest. It was not and never was meant to be about who is that one, that pinnacle at that one moment. It's about all of us. A little swifter, a little higher, faster. That's what everybody's aiming for, Olympian or not. So the games come back into being in 1896. We've had multiple Olympiads since. And there are so many uh, ways to look back and say, oh, we've lost something, we've lost something. Those Olympic games, uh, ancient Olympic games, had everything rolled into one, and they were wonderful and pure and perfect, and they weren't. They were also riddled with people trying to cheat and bad bathrooms. (laughs) Okay, I mean, this is a direct parallel, but you read some of the... Somebody bothered to etch on stone, which is like kind of permanent. It takes a lot of effort. It's not like a tweet about the bad bathroom situations at Olympia. Every four years, the bathrooms, you'd think they would learn. If you read the papers about Rio, we, are, we have not moved too far. So we have this, uh, this concept of these idyllic games, but they weren't. They weren't idyllic. Um, there was corruption. There was cheating. But then, as now, we're talking about the 1%. who did that. And to let that defile everything else is to miss out on so much and miss out on why there's this wonderful symmetry that we can be watching for if you choose during the games in Rio and then two years from now and two years hence. So don't let that get in your way. Look for the capital G good in the games and you will find it. Whatever you seek, you shall find. Seek the good. See what comes out of it. I'm going to give you a little bit of things to look for uh, in the stories we're going to tell in a moment. So, two guys, moving on. The main stories, oh, yeah, it only works if I stand right in front of the projector. Um, This idea of dignity and worth. This has gone all the way back to 1896. There's some excellent stories. I'm just going to focus on a few that you may not have heard of, but it carries through to today. These great stories of people or entire classes of people not being fully appreciated but the Olympic Games being used as a platform to bring attention. This is Fanny Blankers Kuhn. She was, as an 18-year-old, in the, uh, um, I think I'm going to get this right, as an 18-year-old, she ran in the 1936 Games. After the Games, obviously there was, uh, she's from the Netherlands, after the Games, got married, had children. Twelve years later, it's 1948, the Games are finally returning, and they're coming to London, and she says, I'm going to compete. Well, not only is she 30, don't know what she's thinking. <laughs> um, <clears throat> But literally, and this is in the papers uh, frequently, being ridiculed for thinking of doing this when she is somebody's wife. She's a housewife, which I don't understand why you have to say housewife. I think back then, all wives were housewives. It's kind of, which was the point. It's like, well, why not? I'm the best there is. I'm not just good. I'm great. I was great 12 years ago. I'm better now, and I want to compete. Oh, but you're a mother. What kind of example? Think about the children. <laughs> Which, again, has always been a theme. Like that, that's not new. Think about the children. So 
um, finally convinces everybody, including her husband, who was her coach. She married her coach from 12 years back. And he finally said, you need to do this. And she did. And she won, I think, either two or four gold medals in the games, was the darling of the games, the most decorated athlete in 1948. Broke that stereotype. It has not been perfect symmetry between male, male and female events in the Olympics since that point, but the curve went like this to this in terms of leveling up. And this year in the Games, and the United States is not alone in this, but we are sending more female athletes than male athletes to the Games this year. So, yeah. So Fanny Blankers-Kuhn, somebody you should definitely know about. Um, next one I want to talk about. I'm going to have to give up on that, sorry. <laughs> um, so beyond Fanny, breaking down walls, if I can get this image, you know this one. Okay, you may not know the names, but gold medalist, Tommy Smith, silver medalist, John Carlos, and you know the last guy, bronze medalist, the Australian? All right, it's, uh, it's Peter Norman, okay? So three guys that are up there, this is, uh, again, very iconic image, um, but they were making their statement. But the thing is, they were all making their statement. We know the story of, of Carlos and Smith, but the gentleman from Australia, He's the one that got them the three Olympic Program for Human Rights. The OPHR pins that they're wearing, they're kind of up here, that they've all got. He brought those because he was protesting the Australia for Whites movement. Australia for Whites. And so he felt a brotherhood, a camaraderie with this. He said, no, we're, he's like, I'm, I'm there too. I'm there with you in solidarity. So interesting story about the, uh, the third guy there. All of them paid a price for this in their professional careers. All of them. So it cost them dearly to do this. Exact same games, 1968, Mexico City, somebody else who cost herself dearly. The world's best gymnast, Czechoslovakian, Vera Cheslavska. I know I'm butchering that name. Okay, but the best in the world at every competition, everywhere. The Soviet Union was rolling into her country at this time, and she was vocally opposed to this and had to hide out for the months leading up to the games just to ensure that she could make it there to be able to compete without somebody grabbing her so she couldn't try to make a statement. She's the best. I'm going to trust it. I haven't watched it. I don't know how to score gymnastics, even if I could watch it back again. But she got jobbed on two of her main events. Ooh, sorry, a technicality. And a Soviet gymnast took gold. Those two events on the medal stand, she just very quietly, silently, and subtly turned her head down and away during the playing of the Soviet anthem. That was it. That was it. For 12 years that followed, she had to fear for her life, running from place to place to place to avoid being caught and punished for, for that small act. It took many years for that to, to be corrected and come back around. So this idea that standing up for what's right, especially when it comes to people or peoples that are being, being held down, we have stories of that right now, too. Um, some more on the, the feel-good side. The 2000 Olympics in Sydney, Kathy Freeman, Freeman Aboriginal Australian, carried in the torch, lit the flame, one gold on her home soil. It's a pretty big feel-good story, especially when you think back that that happened in 2000. And that instance was probably only a twinkling in the eye of Peter Norman as he stood there on the medal stand in 1968 in Mexico City. Australia for whites. Australia for whites. Not for Kathy Freeman. And below her, does everyone know who this is? She's kind of the, the darling of the games right now, but Yusra Mardini... Do you guys, if you know her story, just a quick show of hands. Oh, awesome. Okay. <clears throat> no, you need, you need to hear this. So she was born to swim. She's 18 years old. Born in Syria, 
born to swim. Her father was her coach all through her life. When things started getting bad, he left for Europe to try and create a space for them to come into. It finally got so bad that she and her sister had to leave Syria as well on the typical, I don't want to say typical, but one of those circuitous paths that eventually got her to Turkey and then trying to cross over into Europe. They've got 18 or 20 people on this boat that was made for six. The engine dies and it starts leaking and they're sort of in the middle of the Aegean Sea. She was born to swim. So she certainly wasn't going to die that way. She and her sister and two others jump out of this disabled boat with far too many people in it and swim it three miles to a shore. That's a really long way. Without pushing a boat. I mean, this is really downright heroic. I have a hard time thinking about it without tearing up. I'm not even sure why. The part of this I love is that the shore they hit is Greece. And it takes her to the Olympic Games. Which would probably not have happened had she stayed in Syria. Because this year, for the first time ever, there's a refugee Olympic team made up of 10 athletes who are not able to compete for their countries because their countries either barely exist or are not able to support an athletic program and these people couldn't go back even if they wanted to. So 10 of them, just to say, you are part of this community, we are here with you, come celebrate. She swam one event, the uh, she's got two events. She swam her first event, the 100 meter butterfly, she won her heat. So. There you have it. She doesn't get to advance, wasn't fast enough to advance, but she's here and part of that community. The other one I talk about a lot, I've mentioned, I think I've said the word three or four times if I was true to my notes, is interconnectedness (laughs) and how we're all interconnected and the games are supposed to bring that out as well. I just want to tell this one quick story. The 1956 games in Melbourne, Australia were billed as the peaceful games and for the most part they were as far as people showing up and all that, but the contests themselves were downright bloody. There were many instances of some pretty extreme violence in the competition itself. So much so that it moved a 17-year-old British citizen living in Australia of Chinese descent who had actually come from Hong Kong to write a letter to the head of the Olympic Committee, of the, the Melbourne Olympic Committee, shortly before it was supposed to wrap up, that said, it had been suggested that a march be put on as part of the closing ceremonies to finish up the games. And you said it can't be done. But I have another idea, a way you can do this. During the march, there will be only one nation. War, politics, and nationality will all be forgotten. What more could anybody want if the whole world could be made as one nation? Well, you can do it in a small way. I like this line. It's a little jab. I'm certain everybody, even yourself, would agree that this would be a great occasion that no one would forget. The important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win, but to take part. The letter was unsigned, but we now know that that was 17-year-old John Ian Wing. And what's happened in that Olympics and everyone since, that is instead of finishing up the games with the the parade of nations coming in again, each with their own song, to then circle the track and be recognized, one song for all the nations, all together, you go in with whoever you want, it is your time to celebrate and connect. And that's what they do and what they've been doing ever since. One simple letter from a 17-year-old. It's the best image for me of that, but it's happening at the games all the time if we just choose to look for it. Another area that could have been a pretty significant uh, rabbit hole for me is this idea of eliciting the best or bringing out the best in others. Because there are so many good examples. And I take eliciting the best, for me anyway, to mean when you do something for somebody else that is helping them be their best self, you're doing that for yourself in in the course of that. So one person I think you should know about, does anyone know the name Eugenio Monti? M-O-N-T-I, right? 
You're supposed to know Italy's top downhill ski racer of the late 1940s, early 50s. <clears throat> he really was the best. He was uh, the tops in his country in getting ready for the 1952 Winter Olympics. He was getting ready to compete in two events. Crashes, tears both knees, he's done. The guy he beat on his own team, the other Italian, went on to win both gold medals. Those probably would have been Monti's gold medals, 1952. Rehabbing, gets in a bobsled. Figures, I can drive this thing, and I know how to go fast on ice. Turns himself into a pretty good bobsledder, so good that in 1956, takes home two silver medals in the Olympic Games in the two-man and four-man bobsled. A pretty impressive pivot. 1960, there's no bobsled. N nobody knows why. It's kind of like a black hole. They could have done it, but they didn't. 1964, he comes back. Okay, 1964, he's 36 years old. He's getting a bit older. After the initial run of the two-man bobsled, Italy, with Monti at the helm, is in first place. The British team, they're in second place, and they're up at the top of the hill getting ready for their second run. And he hears on the radio down at the bottom that they're not going to be able to compete. The pin that holds their back axle together is broken and fallen off, and you can't switch equipment during the, during the competition. They're done. The gold medal is his. Until Monti gets on the radio and says, a pin's on its way up. Just wait two minutes. Pulls it off his own sled and sends it up to the top of the run to the Brits. Pop it into their axle. They're incredibly thankful, but also incredibly fast. And they take the gold medal, and Monti and Italy take bronze. As if that weren't enough. <clears throat> Isn't that a song that we do at Thanksgiving? What's it? Uh... What's that? I forget. What, what's the saying, though? The... Die, 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 Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's an Italian version of that that applies to Monti, because then in the four-person bobsled, the Canadians are up at the top, and their sled's so damaged, they're thinking they're not going to be able to make the run. So Monti goes up there with his own mechanic. He's like, nah, we can fix this. And they MacGyver this sled together for the Canadians to take them to gold, and again, they take bronze. He never got his gold through all those years, but they created something. It's called the de Coubertin Medal of Sportsmanship. And it's the rarest piece of Olympic hardware. It's not given out every year. Sometimes you don't even get it until after you die. <laughs> right? So they gave him that. As it turns out, though, four years later at age 40, goes back for his last shot. Gold in the two, gold in the four. At that point, racing just a race. Having himself a good time. But you talk about bringing up the best in somebody else and having it come out of you... It's not the gold medals that, where Monti hit his pinnacle. It was in what he was doing for everybody else. And that's what was celebrated, and that's what I like most about the games. They created something special for that, because that mattered more than anything else. There are so many stories of perseverance, those who persevered. Um, you don't know him. His name is Ray Yuri. He won eight Olympic gold medals in all the jumping events, 1900, 1904, 1908. He had polio and couldn't walk until he was seven. So what the doctor told them when they finally got everything off, like, okay, if you want to try and walk again, try doing these squats and just jump and just jump. Today we call it plyometrics. Like, you get videos on it, and it's crazy. But it turned him into the human frog. So he won all those medals. But I want to show you, though, everything was standing then. <clears throat> this, this mark right here on the wall, this was his world record height, which was never broken because they discontinued the event. His world record height in the standing high jump. So for context, that means he's down here doing this, this, 
and is clearing that. Again, I mean, the, the extremity of it is, is something pretty impressive. But we have lots of examples of people who never should have been able to walk, let alone run. Wilma Rudolph from 1960. Scarlet fever, pneumonia, her 16 siblings rubbing her legs every day just so she could walk. And she goes on to be the darling of the games, two gold medals, the perfect exemplar of class throughout the whole thing. Gail Devers almost lost both of her feet not long before she was competing in the Olympic Games, went on to compete and win. And I didn't know about her until recently. Betty Robinson was a gold medalist, 1928. Ready for this? Eh, plane crash. Unconscious. Comes back to compete in 1936. People go to great extremes just to come back and compete. Why? Why put yourself through it? And that's the question. That's the big one. It's like, why? So one final one on this. Um, this is Karoli Takac. He's the Hungarian rapid pistol champion. 1936, he was the, uh, the best in the world, but he couldn't compete in the Olympics because Hungarian rules said you have to be a commissioned officer. He had to be of a certain class to be able to represent us in the Olympics. Anyway, they got schooled in 36, and they're like, okay, no, let's, let's let everybody compete because <clears throat> we, we need this guy. 1940, no games. 44, no games. In the interim, though, he's in the Army. In a training accident, a grenade goes off in his right hand, his shooting hand. He's done. So um, he lays in bed for a month and starts training to come back, as you can see from the picture, left-handed. Shows up in 1948, years after he was world champion, and sees the current world champion, Carlos Valiente of Argentina. And I just want to pause because that is the best world champion name ever. <laughs> Carlos Valiente. I mean, yes, you win. He sees Takachi, he's like, it is so good to see you. This is great. Why are you here? He's like, oh, I'm here to learn. I'm here to learn. He goes out and breaks Valiente's world record. <laughs> Left-handed. And so they're standing on the, on the podium afterwards, and Valiente supposedly leans over to him and says, Captain Takach, I think you have learned quite enough. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so my final story that, that I want to leave you with, and if I can get it playing, great. The question of why, why persevere, why go through it, has never been answered better than by this guy right here. And like literally answered in words. It's 1968, it's Mexico City, and the marathon is being run and through these cobblestone streets and it's hot and it's humid and it's just, it's a train wreck, right? So what's happening is that 75 people leave for the marathon and they're running and they're running and this is John Stephen Aquari of Tanzania and about 19 miles in, he gets knocked down to the ground in a pack. He dislocates his knee, he's all cut up and his shoulder hurts, but he doesn't know why. Like, he's having a hard time moving his arm. So what does he do? You're not going to compete. Like, you're not in the running. Why are you still going? At this point, you see it's dark. The event is done. The marathon has been won an hour before. They have given away the medals. They're tearing down the stadium. And here he comes, just walking into the stadium. Sometimes running, sometimes walking sometimes buffering. <laughs> You'll see in a moment, there's not that many people left, but everyone starts to sense what's going on. And they just turn and look and stand and cheer. And he's the last man in the marathon. But he's going to finish, which is why he's the last man in the marathon. 
And if you ever want to search it, go to YouTube, find this thing. There's some good voiceover and the music and all that. And they talk about this being the best of the human spirit. And it answers the question, why? Why bother? Why go through it? And it had nothing to do with, oh, I trained so hard, or, eh, my best time, or anything like that. When the reporter asked him why, he didn't understand the question at first. So he had to rhetorically sort of ask it back and say, why, why endure it? Say, I, I don't think you understand. My country didn't send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish the race. And that's true for more than 10,000 athletes that are assembled in Rio right now. They're the product of a family, a community, perhaps a city or a nation that's pooled their resources and their hopes to at least give them that opportunity. And they honor us with their effort. We will not all have the strength of a weightlifter or the fast twitch muscles of a, a fencer or a sprinter or the, just the pain threshold of a, of a gymnast or a wrestler, but we all have what's needed to live in the spirit of Olympism. And that's just a desire, that desire to be our best and to reach for that in any endeavor. And then to wake up every day and do it again, just a little faster, a little higher, a little stronger, a little better each day.